Good morning. My name is Wes McKay, and I'm senior pastor here at Cross Point Baptist Church. And I want to thank you for joining us again. We come to the portion of our service where we get to uh, praise God and thank God for different things going on in our congregation through the prayers of uh, thanksgiving and petition. This morning we have planned to bring up our Ecuador team and pray over them in our service today. Unfortunately, you may have read my email this past week. We are not able to proceed with our trip. Uh, what has happened in Ecuador just this past Thursday is the president of Ecuador has dissolved the government, meaning he's fired everybody. And, uh, and for six months, he has kind of universal reign over the country to do and say what he wants. And so um, that has led to mass protest and riots in the country where we would inevitably be walking into danger and unsafe territory. Now, again, I think that anytime you go into a mission trip, you are, um, you are walking into a dangerous path because Satan does not want you to be there. And so it's not as if we're scared or afraid or terrified and running away from God's will. I think we're trying to be wise. Um, and unfortunately, after much discussion and prayer with the missionaries there on the ground, there's no promises for our team's safety. There's no promises for our team's transportation, even within the country. We would be stuck in the airport, most likely, and not be able to even get out to the Sotula. And thirdly, there's no promise that we would be able to return. Um, there's just that much mass chaos in Ecuador right now. So after much prayer and just deep um, sorrow, we're not able to proceed this week to go to Ecuador. So right now, I'm just going to ask our church body to pray for Ecuador right now, pray for the government. Right now, this mass chaos and confusion hurts the ministry that's already going on there. And so we need to pray right now for the Gilbert family. The Gilberts are the missionaries that we work with while we're there, and they live there in the village among the Sochla. Um, a guy that I went to college with, him and his wife, uh, they live there among, among the Sochla with their three young boys. Um, all under the age of 10. And so we need to pray for their safety and for their protection because right now um, it's not promised to them. And so if we can just right now, just pray and ask God that His will would be done. I know that we try our best to plan our steps, but God ultimately, His purposes prevail. And I was just reminded out of the book of Daniel how it says this, after God reveals himself in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it says this in Daniel chapter 2. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Now listen to this. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Everything that's going on in Ecuador right now has not caught God by surprise. And so let's just ask that he even uses this situation to bring himself glory and honor. Let's pray. God, you are the great king above all kings. Every earthly king, little K, God, they are under your authority and your dominion and your power. And so God, I pray right now with the political turmoil and chaos right now in Ecuador, Lord, that you would bring calmness and peace to this country. That, God, you would remove riots and protest. And that, God, you would reestablish this government. God, a government that would pursue justice and righteousness and goodness, God. Lord, I pray, uh, God, for the missionaries that we have there on the ground. I pray for people like the Gilberts and people like the Cody's that are there. 
that God, they're, they're under a bullseye, not being Ecuadorians themselves. And so, God, I pray for their families right now that you would protect them, guard them from any, safe, any potential danger, keep them safe, God, even their children safe, Lord. And that, God, even in the midst of this turmoil and chaos, that, God, you would give them unique avenues to bring the good news of Jesus Christ, whose government never is toppled, whose government is never unstable, who reigns forever and ever, and no one can usurp his authority. That is the king that we serve, and I pray that that would be the good news that can be shared in the midst of a crumbling society and government in Ecuador. God, I pray again, Lord, for safety. I know that this can only cause great concern and worry in the hearts and minds of our missionaries, but I pray that they would rest in your great sovereign hand. And that, Lord, that they would imitate our Lord and Savior who in the midst of the greatest persecution, the greatest trial, the greatest tribulation, his own, his own death being inevitable. First Peter tells us he trusted himself to the one who judges justly. May they do that in this moment. May they feel the prayers and the support of this church body right now. And it would encourage them. It would strengthen them. God, that you would use... You would use this time to bring you glory and honor among the Sachla and among Ecuador. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. We now come to the portion of our service where we get to worship through the giving of tithes and offerings. If you're a guest here this morning, you're certainly not obligated to give, but you're certainly welcome to. This is one of the ways that we express our love to God, is that we give our money away. Is we give it to God who it's ultimately His in the first place. Because we want to see it used to bring the gospel to the nations. And if you're a member here at Crosspoint, you'll know our mission statement, I hope, hopefully by now, pretty well. And if you would, just say it with me. Crosspoint Baptist Church exists to make disciples of all nations for the good of all people and for the glory of God. That is why we exist, and that is why we give our money in tithes and offerings, so we can see that, that the gospel brought to all nations. So if you would take some time right now to uh, to pray with those around you, pray with your, your family members, or pray with somebody who is sitting near you, and pray that God would use this tithes and offerings to bring himself glory to all the nations. Take this time to pray right now.
morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm really, I mean, I'm thankful to the Lord every day, but I'm really thankful this morning of His protection and guidance and will in the, in the Ecuador trip. But I'm also thankful, I'm, I don't say this a lot or try and make mention of my personal life a lot, but I'm just thankful to God. I get to celebrate 12 years of marriage to Myra today. It's our anniversary. I, I know what you're thinking. Yes, she is a blessed woman. She is a, I know what you're thinking. And she is thankful to the Lord, too, that she has me. So we both actually forgot it was today. <laughs> we, we didn't recognize till we got here. It's like, oh, it's our anniversary today. 12 years. So, and I hope many more to come. Uh, we will be in Exodus chapter 22, verses uh, 16 through 20 today. If, uh, once, uh, if, you turn, if you will, turn your Bible there, and once you arrive there, if you would, stand for the reading of God's Word. If you remember, we skipped a couple verses, these verses last week, because I didn't necessarily want to preach on them on Mother's Day. Uh, and so, uh, but we are going to cover them today. So, and you'll, after we read them, you'll see why we didn't do them last week. So starting in verse 16, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for even these scriptures, God, that you have given us. Every word we have here is God-breathed and is profitable for training, for proof, for rebuking. And God, we need it. The whole counsel of God. Let us see this morning that your designs and your fixtures and your boundaries are good for us, God. And so I pray that we would respect them, we would honor them because you are a holy God. And that God, from this, you would be worshipped and praised by our obedience to you, God. Thank you for giving us your word. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. If you're here with us this morning for the first time, uh, I didn't randomly pick this passage. I don't know if any pastor would randomly pick this passage. Uh, this is just where we're at in the book of Exodus, and we've uh, journeyed this long and gotten to Exodus chapter 22, verses 16 through 20. And this morning, we're really going to look at, at uh, God's design and the boundaries that He set in place for His people. And that's the main point of today's text, is God's designs and boundaries are good, but, and there are serious consequences if we, His people, expand them, dismiss them, or distort them. There are serious consequences to do that. And we all have this proclivity. It can be seen even in how we, we treat no trespassing signs. I don't know if you're like me, but when I see a no trespassing sign, I'm thinking, what's back there? What, what, are, they, what are they trying to hide? You know, I, I think about the place in Dry Prong that I used to go out into the woods and swim at. Uh, you know, a, a beautiful, 
beautiful pond just way back in these woods. Now I drive by there and there's no trespassing signs. Now, I think they were there. I just didn't care, right? But you always wonder, what's, what's back there? Oh, does that really apply to me, no trespassing? They probably didn't write that for me, right? Like, they didn't mean me, right? And so you can see the human proclivity to say, oh, that's for somebody else. Oh, man, maybe that doesn't mean no trespassing, like don't walk past this sign. You know, that probably doesn't mean that. Or, you know what, maybe just for a little bit, you know. That's the human kind of inclination. We want to expand or we want to distort or we want to dismiss to try and get away with what it actually says. No trespassing. Anyone, right? We don't like boundaries, and it's tempting when we see boundaries to expand them, distort them, dismiss them. But this is what our text is about today, is that God has designed boundaries and fixtures for us, for our good, but in our sin, in our sinful hearts, in our sinful inclinations, we want to do our best to find a way around boundaries, to find our way through boundaries, to find loopholes and boundaries that God gives. And ultimately, that is a very dangerous thing for us to do, what we'll find out in today's text. That to distort, dismiss, or expand God's boundaries and fixtures, there's actually serious consequences for like that, for that, as we'll see. Here's a couple of the boundaries that we'll look at today. Number one is this. In verses 16 and 17, you'll see the prohibition, the warning, not to expand, dismiss, or distort the boundaries of sacred marriage. That marriage is sacred, something that God has designed and fixed. And this is the scenario that is outlined for us in the verse, these two verses in 16 and 17. Is that there's a man who has been sexually intimate with an unmarried virgin who is not his wife, is what it says. And he, I guess he expects no consequences to come from this, right? And the text says, interestingly, if a man seduces, seduced, right? This communicates some deceitful intent, sinister, trying to do it, you know, behind closed doors where nobody knows. There's a deceitful intent behind this. And so you can see that the language is intended to express that this man is not intending to maintain or uphold the boundaries of sexual intimacy. He's intending to distort them. He's intending to dismiss them. He's intending to basically expand them. But his action will not go unpunished, right? You see here. His action will not go unpunished. That this act, whether consensual or not, it dishonors her. And it dishonors her family when he seduces a woman and is sexually intimate with her. Because the man has not gone through the proper channels and process to make her his wife. So that they can experience sexual intimacy together. And that just because this man this, is sexually intimate with this virgin, this unmarried woman, it doesn't automatically mean that she is now his wife, just because they've had this experience together. It doesn't automatically mean that. And it also doesn't mean that there's no consequences, he can just up and leave, right? No. If a young man, what it says in verse 16 and 17 is sexually intimate with an unmarried woman. It seems here that it's, he's actually obligated to marry her. He can't just up and leave her. Or it doesn't automatically make her his wife. But as you can probably, I think, as parents understand this, you know, there's even a situation where the father gets involved here. 
right? He may utterly refuse to give his daughter to this man who has seduced her, right? I think we could all agree you can see why, right? It wouldn't be in her best interest. He has not gone through the proper channels and process to rightfully make her his wife. And so he may utterly refuse, but he doesn't get off if he utterly refuses. He still has to pay the bride price. And the bride price is, this was a gift that was given to the family when a man had intent and desire to marry the woman. It was kind of a sign and a signal that here is my desire. I would like to marry your daughter. And here's a gift because this expresses how much I value you and how much I value your daughter. Right? This is what the bride price is. And so he doesn't get off scot-free if the father doesn't consent to marriage. No, he still has to show honor. He still has to show value for the woman. But here's what's underneath this prohibition. Here's what's underneath this man's act. Is that, it's this, it's that God has designed a place and boundaries for sexual intimacy. That's within the marriage union of a husband and a wife. And this man has totally disregarded all that. That God set that up from the very beginning. And so this man's act here of seduction and taking her, this is an expansion or this is a dismissal of it altogether, right? Of the boundaries that God set in place. Because we know from the very beginning in Genesis 2, 22 through 24, that God sets the boundaries for the marriage union between man and woman. And that it's in this union of man and woman, husband and wife, that sexual intimacy is to be experienced and enjoyed. And it's good what he says. It's good. It's a good thing, right? Genesis 2, 24 through 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This, this is the boundaries. This is the design. This is the ideal that God has set up for humanity, for his creation, for his people. But ever since the fall, ever since Genesis 3, Humans have tried to distort, dismiss, and expand the boundaries of sexual intimacy. Look, the marriage union is too confined. Why do we have to have, why why does it have to only be with our wife? Why can't I I have it with somebody else who I like just as much, who I think is just as pretty or just as handsome? Why can't I, why, why? it's so confined, it's suffocating, right? Or people might say, well, we don't have to wait for that to enjoy sexual intimacy. We don't have to wait for marriage. That's dismissing God's ideal for marriage. That's distorting it. That's expanding it. And that is sin. That is sin. That's what we do. That's what our human sinful inclinations do. And that's what this man's did. He knew, knowing God's ideal for marriage and where sexual intimacy is to be enjoyed and experienced, he said, I don't care about that ideal. I don't care about that design. I don't care about that boundary. Right? And this is what sin does to us, church. This is what sin does. It distorts our thinking to think, I know what God's designs and boundaries are for my life and for sexual intimacy and other things, but I can rearrange them. It doesn't have to be in the order that God gave. I can put them in whatever order I like as long as I've checked all the boxes and I've done all the right things. I can do it in whatever order it matters. 
Church, remember this. God has not just designed the means. He's designed every piece, the order. We don't get to distort, dismiss, or expand what God has ordered and designed. He's, he's designed for us to experience things and boundaries. And so the church should not be the people who think, well, I can expand this boundary, or I can distort this boundary, or I can dismiss this boundary. We should be the people who promote God's boundaries in order. We should be the people who say, this is good for us. We should be the people who say, let's honor marriage. Let's honor the marriage bed and sexual intimacy. That's what it says in Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous so we church should be the people that says God's order and ideal for sexual intimacy within the confines of marriage is a good thing for us it's a good thing and that look you might be thinking well God's holding back on me why can't I have this enjoyment now? Why does it have to be within this confines, within this union, within these parameters, within these boundaries? Do you not know what the psalmist says? That he does not withhold any good thing for those who walk uprightly. God is not trying to hold you back from joy. He's trying to increase your joy. And when we operate within the bounds of his boundaries, it will bring us true joy. And this morning, you might be in here, and you may have not honored, not honored marriage, not honored sexual intimacy. And look, there's good news. Is that Jesus even forgives and shows grace to the adulterous and the sexually immoral. Praise God. Is that He doesn't turn His hands away and says, no, you, you have the scarlet letter on you. And everybody's going to know. And I will not receive you. No. Jesus, He welcomes all people, whatever they come out of. Sexual immorality, adultery. For those who repent and trust in Christ, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what the Scriptures say. This is what Paul tells his church in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, he says, or do, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. He just said that. Idolaters, adulterers, sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But if you repent in Christ, he will cleanse you from all that and give you entrance in. This is why he goes on to say, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Know this this morning. If you come in here and you've not honored marriage, if you've not honored and you've defiled the marriage bed, know this, that God has grace upon grace for even you in Christ Jesus. The church, we should be the ones who say we honor marriage. We honor the boundaries and the parameters that God has set in place in His Word. That we aren't to expand them and that we aren't to distort them or dismiss them. Sin leads us to reorder God's design for the sacredness of marriage, but it also leads us to reckon that God's word, what he said here, is really not sufficient for us. And this is point number two, sufficient word. 
sufficient word. I don't know about you, but before, before Google and Siri and Alexa came on the scene, where did, what did people consult when they had a question? You ever thought about that? Now, who grew up with encyclopedias? Yeah. So you got a question, you're like, hey, how does, um, you know, how does, I don't know, I didn't really ask questions. Uh, so um, how, how, how does this work? And were you ever told, like, hey, look, you see all those gray books on the bookshelf or all those red, red books? Go look it up. And it's like the encyclopedias, right? That was our source of knowledge. That's where we gain, like, learn the truth of things. That's where we, hey, when you don't have, hey, Siri, tell me what's blah, 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 blah. You go to the encyclopedias. That was, the, that was kind of the hub of truth and knowledge right there. And unfortunately, Israel has a very similar problem in its midst, is that it has, Israel has God's Word, but there are very certain times in their history where they don't feel like God's Word is enough. It's not really the source of truth for them. It's not really the source of knowledge for them. So they go and look at other places. They look, go and look for other things, and they go and look for other people. And this is, this is what verse 18 is all about. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Is that the law prohibits Israel from having necromancers, from having um, sorcerers, witches, existing in Israel. And so you might think, well, what's so bad about sorcery other than it just being creepy? What is so bad about sorcery? Well, here, here's a couple reasons that it's bad. Is first, Israel was to be distinct from, from all other nations. And all the other nations, they had sorcerers. We've already seen sorcerers, magicians in the book of Exodus. Everybody remembers in Exodus chapter 7 when Moses goes before Pharaoh and he starts doing his signs and his wonders before Pharaoh. Who does Pharaoh call upon? Magicians, right? Sorcerers. He calls on them saying, come and do likewise. And ultimately what they find out, what Pharaoh and his magicians find out is that we cannot compete with Yahweh. We can't compete with him. He is on a completely different level. And so the other nations, they had sorcerers, they had witches, they had magicians who would do powerful acts for them. And so Israel was to be distinct from them. But not only that, is that in the Bible, it's very clear that what necromancers, what witches, what sorcerers thought they could do is that they thought that they could know the future, like see into the future and know the future, but they also thought a second thing, what the prophets tell us, they also thought that they could determine the future. Now, you see that distinction there? Is that not only sorcerers and witches and magicians, they thought they could know what's going to happen, but they also thought that if you consulted with them and asked them, they could change the future for you. That's what, that's what was thought. Is that they had omniscience and also omnipotence, great power. And as we know, they have neither, Right? Only God has that kind of knowledge, and only God has that kind of power. Psalm 139.4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all together. Before I can even say a word. Isaiah 46.9 and 10, for I am the Lord God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, 
saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God knows the future. He has planned the future. He knows every single detail of the future. And it cannot be changed by a sorcerer, witch, magician. They have no power, right? But Israel would be tempted to consult them because they would be told what God has said is going to come about. And they wouldn't trust it. They wouldn't think it's enough. And so they wanted further guidance. They wanted further instruction from these sorcerers. Give more counsel. And so what they're doing when they go and counsel with these sorcerers, they're saying God's word cannot be trusted and it is not sufficient. I'll give you an example. This happens in the Bible. 1 Samuel 28. Saul and the witch of Endor. Very weird story. But I'll go ahead and give you the cliff notes. Is Saul has already been told by God what he's supposed to do and what's going to happen. It's already been clear. Saul, here's what you're supposed to do. Here's what's going to happen. Things like that. Well, Saul has been in sin, and God's not answering him at this moment. And so you know what he does? Even though he's been told what to do, he's been told how it's all going to play out, he gets worried, and he wants more counsel, and he wants more guidance. So he goes to a sorcerer or a witch to give him more guidance. And what he does is he says, bring up Samuel, the prophet Samuel, from the dead. That's what he asked the sorcerer to do. And so she does her little concoctions, and she puts, I don't, I'm making all this up right now, so this is not in the story. She didn't have a pot, and she's like, ah, she's not doing anything like that. But she happens to bring up Samuel from the dead. Now, the text is pretty clear. She's pretty surprised at what she's done. She's like, uh, it's never happened like this. I've never been able to, this is the first time. I've tried a lot of different ways. Like, clearly God is, some, is intervening in this point to basically send a message to Saul. When Samuel comes up from the grave, he sees Saul. And you know what his first words are? What have you done? What are you doing? He's like, you should never have come here. You should have never been here. Basically, God's already told you what to do. And he's already told you how it's going to happen. You shouldn't be consulting witches and sorcerers to get more wisdom and get more knowledge and get more truth. Because God has already told it to you. And it's efficient and sufficient for you. What are you doing here? And that is Saul's demise. The book of Chronicles tells about Saul's demise when it says this in 1 Chronicles 10, 13, and 14. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death. Saul believed that he needed more. Saul believed that God's word wasn't enough for him. Saul believed that maybe God's word wouldn't come true for him. And so he went out and sought other avenues of knowledge and of truth. That was all wrong. And so sorcerers can't be allowed to remain in Israel because Israel would be tempted to consult them. I mean, Saul, in 1 Samuel 28, Saul kicked them all out of Israel. And yet he still went all the way to Endor to find one. So if they were in the midst of Israel, he would be consulting them every day. And look, church, you might be thinking, I don't know what the application is from this verse, Wes. I don't have any sorcerers in my life. I don't visit any witches and stuff like that. But I'll tell you this. We all struggle to believe God's word is true and to believe God's word is sufficient. 
and that we all struggle not to go somewhere else to look for more. God's Word is efficient. It will come to pass. Every single word. Every dot. That God's Word is enough for you, and we don't need anything more. And so, yes, I think, just to warn you, I don't think you should be playing with Ouija boards. I don't think you should be going to palm readers. I don't think you should be going to psychics. Let me just warn you, don't do that. They can't give you any information. They are frauds. They are frauds, church. Don't go to them. Because you, you know what? You're going to them for more truth when you have the truth. You're going to them for more knowledge when you have knowledge. The greatest knowledge in God. They can't know the future nor change the future, but you, we have a God who knows the future and changes, and changes it and, and has determined it from the beginning. They can't do anything for you. And so God's Word is to be trusted, and it is sufficient for you, church, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when it feels like it's lacking or it's not enough or I don't have it. And maybe right now you're in a season where you're, there's areas of your life where you're looking for additional knowledge. You're looking for additional truth. You're looking for additional guidance and confidence on things because you feel like God's Word isn't just, it's not getting it for you right now. It's lacking something. It's not bringing something to you. And let me just tell you this. If you're in that moment, the problem is not with God's Word. The problem is within us. God's Word is sufficient and efficient, as 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 tells us. It's, it's enough. And so will you trust it? Will you trust it? This morning, you might be in need of God's Word this morning. And I would just say, look to Jesus, who is God's final Word. He's God's final Word on all things. In Christ, we have the final Word. That the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. And many times, in many ways, God spoke to us through, through our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom all, whom also He created the world. We have the final word in Christ Jesus. You don't need other avenues of knowledge and truth, and you don't need sorcerers and, and witches to give you something that God cannot give you. He's given it to you. Will you trust it? Will you believe that it's sufficient for you? That it's sufficient for you right now in whatever thing that you go through. Whether that's parenting. Whether that's your job. Whether that's a sickness. Whether that's a death. Whatever it may be. God's Word. God's Word is efficient. Sin makes us think that God's Word is untrue or insufficient. But it also, sin leads us to to areas that we could not even imagine that we would go to to push the bounds that God has set in place. This is number three. Sin's shamefulness. In verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. You may know this phrase, you give an inch and they'll take a what? Take a mile. You give a person an inch and they'll take a mile. They'll go, go as far as you'll let them. And I would say this, Human sinfulness, our sinfulness, will lead you to things that you could never imagine were possible. 
Because our text today began with people in their sin pushing boundaries of sexual intimacy, saying, it doesn't have to be between, you know, a husband and wife. It can, it can be between whoever, whenever kind of thing. But look at what this does here. It, again, has to do with sexuality and sexual intimacy in verse 19. Speaking of bestiality. Because what this sin says is that sexual intimacy doesn't have to be confined to the marriage union. doesn't have to be confined to a man and woman. It doesn't even have to be confined to two humans. Sin expands the boundaries to where sexual intimacy can be experienced by whoever with whatever. Right? This is not rearranged. This, this prohibition right here, not to lie with animals, it's not just... <laughs> It's not just rearranging God's order. It's totally distorting it. It's distorting God's order. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, God has made distinctions in creation, right? He's created trees and plants and animals. But he's made a distinction in creation where there's only one thing, one person made in the image of God. And who is that? Us, humans. Animals, plants, trees, the planet, stars are not made in the image of God. And so there's a distinction between creatures and images of God, humans. And what this act does, this grotesque act of unnatural relations with animals, is it totally says, no more distinctions. Everybody's the same. Doesn't matter. It, it eliminates distinctions where humans become nothing more than animals, right? It's a perversion of God's distinctions in the design of His world. This is why Leviticus 18.23 says, And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. This type of sin denigrates the image of God in us where people become less like humans and more like animals. And this, I'm just going to say that I don't think God would give us a prohibition against this Israel prohibition that if it weren't possible that people were actually doing it. This was going on. And you might be sitting here thinking, it's hard to even imagine how one could engage in such a grotesque and sick, sick act of un unnatural relations with an animal. But remember this, church. Sin is not rational. Sin is not reasonable. Sin is not logical. You, sin will distort our minds to such a degree where everything seems acceptable. It's what sin does. It deceives you. It doesn't make sense. Romans 1, 18-32 is a great place to look at this where people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And you can see just how sin evolves and how it denigrates humanity. And they go into more and more and more and worse and worse and worse sins. It gets even worse. And so sin does not stay static. It does not stay the same. You give it an inch, and what will it take? A mile. That's what sin does. It's not. It's not rational. Sin evolves into unimaginable acts. 
And maybe as you read this and say, man, I, I, I don't have any struggles with this right now. <laughs> I hope that's the case. You might be saying, this is just sick. It makes me sick to my stomach to even talk about a sin like this. Unnatural relations with animals. This type of sin is sick and heinous and grotesque and unnatural. But let me just ask you this. Shouldn't we be sick to our stomachs about all sin? Shouldn't all sin make us sick? Shouldn't all sin be grotesque in our eyes? Shouldn't all sin be an abomination and make us just uneasy? Not just this sin. We think this sin is the worst of the worst, and it's sickening, and it's gross, and it's unnatural. Shouldn't all sin be that disgusting to us? Because it's disgusting before a holy God. It's unholy, it's irrational, it's unreasonable. It's rebellion against Him. All sin is an abomination. And we should see all sin, even our own sin, as sick. And unfortunately, even in my own life, I've, we've, we've, I think we all could say we've gotten to a point where what Jerry Bridges was called was say, we have respectable sins. Yeah, there's these kind of sins, but then there's sins that it's kind of okay if you get away with, and it's okay to do. Let me just say this. There is no respectable sin in the eyes of God. There's no... Uh, you know, before we stand before God on Judgment Day, there's no this song, yeah, I know you're human. Yeah, everybody does that. Don't worry. Come on in. It's not how it works. You stand before God and you give an account for everything, what 2 Corinthians 5 says. There is no respectable sin in God's eyes. And so should we ever be okay with any sin that we commit? Whether it's a lie, whether it's an evil thought, whether it's a, a malice word against somebody, whether against gossip or slander, whatever it is, shouldn't it all make us sick to our stomachs like this sin does? We should be sickened by sin, but it should not keep us from running to Jesus. We should be sickened by sin, but not to the sense that we're in despair and that we cannot do anything about it, but you can. You can run to Jesus who has died He's died on the cross for even sins like Exodus 22.19. He, he died for even sins like that that are so deplorable in our minds, so grotesque in our minds, so sickening in our minds, so unnatural in our minds. He's died for even sins like that. This is Jesus. Let us be sickened by sin, church. Every sin that we commit, let's be sickened by it. But let it never cause you not to run to Jesus with every single one of them who's the author and perfecter of our faith, who the joy set before him endured the cross, despising suffering and shame on our behalf to pay for every single sin that we deem respectable and unrespectable, disrespectable, whatever. We've talked about heavy topics so far that have heavy consequences. And the last one we'll talk about is just as heavy, and the consequences are just as severe. This is point number four, soul allegiance. Soul allegiance, verse 20. In the Olympics, you know, you can be, as you've probably seen, you can be a resident of one country, and you can actually compete for your home country. So we see a lot of, like, NBA players do this. You know, they, they play NBA here, 
But then when the Olympics come around, they go and play for their home country, where they were born at, raised at, their origin country. Now, what can't happen is that they can't compete for both in the same Olympics. Can't do that. You can't compete for the USA and then go compete for France as well, or Germany, or whoever it may be. You have to pick a side. You have to pick a team, right? Because who get, if you tried to compete for both and be on the team of both, who gets the medal at the end? Who gets the gold medal? Whose team, whose team wins? Well, don't, don't know. You can't, can't hold both sides. Both want you to be solely allegiant and devoted to them, right? They have competing interests at stake. And likewise, God will not allow His people to sacrifice to other gods while they sacrifice to Him as well. He requires soul allegiance and devotion, devotion to Him alone. And again, we see this as an expansion on God's boundaries, right? Like Israel, other pagan religions, they had multiple gods that they could sacrifice multiple things to. It didn't matter if you had 300 gods or three gods, right? You could do, have them all. And then they had a sacrificial system as well. And this is how they worshiped their gods. They worshiped them through sacrifice, right? Because sacrifice is a sign of one's allegiance to the God that they sacrifice to. It's a sign of their devotion. It's a sign of their worship to Him, right? And so therefore, if someone is sacrificing to Yahweh and to another God, they are trying to worship both of them and have them both as their gods. Now, let me put it in a little bit of an analogy. Let's say you're, you know, asking someone on a date, on a first date, or you recall, you know, asking uh, your spouse on a date for the first time, and you say, hey, would you, would you like to go out with me? And your, your spouse says, yeah, I would love to. I would love to. I, you know, this is great. Let, yeah, I would love to go out on a date on you. And then your next question is, could my, could my current boyfriend, girlfriend go with me? Go, come with us? And I would assume that most reasonable people would say, uh, no, uh, yeah, no, you, you got to date me, or you, you got to break up with the girlfriend and boyfriend. You, you can't have both. And so this is what is happening here in Israel, saying, hey, yeah, God, I want to I worship you too, but is it okay if I bring Baal over? Is it okay if I keep sacrificing to him? Is, I, is it okay? And like the girlfriend or boyfriend's like, no, it's not okay. You can't. You can't worship both. Jesus says these very things. You, you can't serve two masters. You can't have two lords. God establishes boundaries for his worship. And one of those requirements and boundaries for worship is exclusivity, meaning the Lord alone is the one that you are to worship, right? There is no other one besides him. And so it matters about who we worship. And it matters about how we worship. And God says it not only matters who you worship, how you worship, it matters that I'm the only one that you worship. I'm the only God. There's none besides me. And so we have to worship him rightly. We have to worship him rightly. We have to worship him only. And those who attempt to bring false gods, idols, or religions into God's people should be devoted to the band to be executed. They can't be allowed to remain in Israel because there is a temptation, just like the sorcerers, that they would bring them into their pagan religions. Let's just look at Solomon's downfall. Solomon's downfall. He had how many wives? 800, right? 700? 
400? Se- 700 wives. Let's just say one too many. So, one too many, right? Now, here's the problem. So that was a problem, having, having that many wives when she's told not to. Second problem was, is that he married women from other nations, Egyptians, Canaanites. And you know what they did? They brought in their gods and their idols. And you know what happened? He began to worship them as well. That's the problem here. So they can't be allowed to operate within, is, within Israel's society because they will draw the hearts of Israelites to them. And this morning, you may not be sacrificing the blood of bulls and goats to idols of this present world, but that doesn't mean you don't serve other gods. That doesn't mean that you have other idols in our hearts and lives or other gods. And, you know, we've talked about this before when we've talked about the prohibition against idols. So how do you discern whether you have a god in your life or an idol in your life other than God himself? Well, you just start considering... What do you spend the most time on, the most energy on, the most money on, emotion on? What do you serve the most? What gives you the greatest joy? What brings you the most comfort? What gives you the most security? What do you rely upon? And what makes you really angry when somebody takes it away from you? That, if you begin to answer those questions, you might find your object of worship. And what's the scary part is, it may not be God. And that's where we have to do soul searching. Is our soul allegiance and devotion to Christ? Because He will not allow us to worship all these other masters and lords that call for our time and attention. Ask yourselves this, church. Is the Lord right now competing for your love, for your affections, for your joy, for your time, for your service with the gods of this world. Yeah, I'll give Jesus a little time over here, but I got so many of these other things that I got to put my time and energy into. Is Jesus competing against the gods of this world? And if he is, then he may not be our God at all because he will not allow us to have, have divided allegiance. And so God has created boundaries for His worship. He's created boundaries for sin and sexual, sexuality, for knowledge and truth. But the sin of every age from the beginning of time has started off with this question. It started from the garden and it still wreaks havoc today in our lives. Did God really say when we talk about God's boundaries and God's designs, this is the question that started in the mind of Adam and Eve by the tempter and is to you today when you think about God's designs and boundaries. Did God really say that? Did He really set that as a fixture? Is that really a boundary? Did He really mean that when He said this? That's the, that's the perpetual question that you're going to have to deal with, that we're going to have to deal with. Did God really say it? Is that really what he meant? Are his boundaries eternal or are they movable? Are they good or are they trustworthy or are they flexible? What Jesus says this, for I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot 
shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. It sounds like what Jesus says is that it's immovable. His boundaries, his designs are fixed. Did God really say? So when you come up against one of God's boundaries that you know is one of God's boundaries, you know is outside of his designs, you know are outside of his ideals, you know is sin. The question that Satan, the tempter, is going to say is, did God really say? Did God really say? And what we should respond with is this. He said it. He meant it. It's efficient. It's sufficient for us. We're going to believe it and obey it. Because we don't get to distort, dismiss, or expand what God has said. Our world is broken because of us. Because we've distorted, expanded, dismissed God's boundaries. We've done that because of our sin. We've dismissed His design. We have expanded His boundaries. And we've distorted His parameters. And you know what we desperately need? We need somebody to come and make all these things new again. Because that's how badly we have broken them. And this is our hope in life and death, that Jesus is coming to return. And what he says in Revelation 21.5, And the one who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The designs that God has put into place from the very beginning. We have broken by our sin, each and every one of us. And we desperately need somebody to come make this world new. But most importantly, I think, to come make us new in Christ. And that is what He has come to do through His perfect life and death and resurrection. He has come, what 2 Corinthians 5 says, to make you a new, anybody know? Creation. You've been distorted. You've dismissed you've expanded, and you've sinned, and you need to be made new through Christ. And that is, that is what He has come to do. Let's pray. God, we love You, and we thank You for Your Word. It is sufficient for us. It is efficient for us, God. It will, all of it will come true, and there is enough for us each day. God, guard us against expanding Your boundaries, dismissing them, distorting them, for that is sin. What you have said is fixed, God. Lord, I pray, God, help us to remember that this is our hope in life and death, even though we've dismissed, distorted, and expanded, Christ is coming to make all things new. And it is that world that we long for and hope for. Christ, be with us now. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.